Welcome everybody to the very first episode of Liberty Mailbag. My name is Victor Kim and I'm currently serving as a pastoral resident here at Liberty Church of the River Wards. During this time, I'm going to try to answer some questions from our congregation that have been submitted to our leadership. And with this in mind, if you have any questions about the Christian faith, God, the Bible, or anything at all, I invite you to Submit your questions. You can email me at victor at liberty.org or you can call and leave a message with your question at 267-908-3625. This call for questions is open for everyone, not just those who attend our church. So if for some reason you found yourself listening in on this episode and have a question, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, We currently don't have a set schedule for these episodes, but we're going to record as the questions come in. Our first question was asked in response to part one of our current teaching series on can we trust the Bible? Maybe a little background information may be helpful for those who maybe were not able to tune in for that first session. We began by thinking through this uh, general idea of knowledge How can a transcendent, all-knowing, eternal God be known by creation? And we looked at how this is possible through divine condescension. That means that God himself has actually stooped down in order to communicate clearly to his people. We also looked at This idea that this knowledge is not exhaustive, our knowledge of God can never be exhaustive. We can never know God as God knows himself because then uh, we would be elevated to the plan of God. And uh, even though our knowledge is partial, we can still have faith that it is true. And uh, use the example of just uh, sitting in a chair. Uh, I can have confidence and know that A chair is a chair by looking at it. I don't need to know this chair exhaustively in terms of uh, where it was manufactured, uh, the exact chemistry that uh, makes up the components of the chair, but I can see it. I can know some things about the chair, have faith that it is a chair and that I can sit in it and take action to sit in it. And so uh, the question is, in part one of your teaching series, you spoke about the fact that We don't need to have an exhaustive knowledge of something in order to have faith that it's true. Couldn't people of other religions and faith claim the same thing as Christians when it comes to partial but true knowledge? For example, Muslims and the Quran. This is a great question. And uh, as we get into it, I think we need to really focus on the central idea of Muslims' understanding of Allah is his oneness, right? Which is the foundation of everything else in Islam. Uh, We can go on and on about what Muslims believe about the oneness of God, but uh, in short, one part of this oneness means that Allah is absolutely transcendent and he's free. His freedom is absolute. So there's no constraint in Allah whatsoever, right? Not by people, not by creation, not by anything. He is eternally free to choose whatever he wants to do at any time. And so when we consider uh, the Quran, which is, according to Muslims, uh, the divine revelation of Allah's will, I believe Islam 
runs into a problem when it comes to having confidence in knowing their knowledge is true. Because Allah is absolutely transcendent, right? According to Islam, he cannot have any relationship to anything contingent. So how can we be sure that what Allah is saying in his will is actually his will, right? Because by definition, Allah cannot be bound by his will. Even his revealed will found in the Quran. If he were bound by his revelation by the Quran, he could not be transcendent and would be dependent on something that is found in the world. And uh, by uh, Islam's definition of Allah, that is a contradiction. Uh, because Allah cannot be constrained, Muslims really have no assurance of their eternal destiny. There's no assurance because Allah cannot be constrained by his own will, right? So we take that one step further and what he wills to do in the end may be the exact opposite of his will revealed in the Quran because he's not bound by it. And so, in short, Muslims are operating with the hope that Allah will be pleased and delighted in their deeds and so uh, bring them into heaven. But you can see how this hope is not grounded on a true knowledge, but instead it's grounded in a hope that finds its foundation in utter uncertainty. And so uh, the answer to your question of can, couldn't people of other religions and faith claim the same things as Christians when it comes to partial but true knowledge? I believe for Muslims, the answer is no. Uh, because they can never truly know what God's will is, uh, even though it's revealed to them. Because if Allah is bound by that revealed will, he actually ceases to be God. I hope that answers your question. Next question. Why is Ecclesiastes included in the Bible? Why this book? And I think Ecclesiastes, we can categorize it as wisdom literature, right? It offers a very clear message that is relevant to us today. It might not seem that way at a first read, but uh, right at the conclusion in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the point is clear. What's the message? What is the wisdom? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And the way that Solomon comes to this conclusion and develops his thought throughout the book is noteworthy, right? So very quickly, when we think about the two phrases repeated throughout the book, vanity and life under the sun, we see that Solomon is recognizing that he lives in a broken world. Life under the sun, subjected by the curse brought about by sin, is messy at times and doesn't always function according to neatly organized and tidy rules. In a reflection of his life, Solomon describes that all is vanity. It's empty because life under the sun is temporary. It is not permanent. And despite uh, the temporality of life, God has, according to chapter 3, verse 11, set eternity in a person's heart, right? So, uh, there is within each and every one of us this sense where we can look forward to a time when the temporary things will be forgotten and someday when God's purposes, which might not make any sense now, 
will be understood. And so the call in this book is that despite the transient nature of life, we as believers are called to live in such a way that is faithful to the Lord, to continue to trust in our creator and cling to him and find confidence in his knowledge of uh, his purposes in this generation. The last question we're going to tackle today is, how should we understand the Gnostic Gospels? To answer this, I think we need to briefly review what is Gnosticism. Gnosticism was uh, one of the most substantial challenges to early Christianity that emerged in the late first century but gained popularity in the second century. And uh, in short, Gnosticism uh, holds a sharp distinction between the spiritual and the material world, and all material things are considered evil. And so Gnosticism emphasized the human need for salvation from the evil of this material world. And uh, the salvation came through receiving of a secret gnosis or knowledge that Jesus gave and secretly disclosed to the apostles. And a Christian Gnostic body of literature appeared and claimed to have apostolic authorship, including Peter, Philip, Thomas, and Judas. And this, these uh, collection of writings is what we know today as the Gnostic Gospels. And so I think the heart of the question is why, you know, why aren't these Gnostic Gospels included in the Bible? And again, this question uh, came from our first session of uh, can we trust uh, the Bible? And uh, during that session, we recognize that the books in the New Testament are there. And we can see that these books belong in the New Testament because there's a deep unity and structure that we can find throughout the books, right? Uh, there's doctrinal unity, right? The Bible is unified on a complex array of theological issues, the nature of God, make, the makeup of man, nation of Israel, etc., etc., uh, the Gnostic Gospels actually deviate from the doctrinal unity found in Scripture. And what we find in these Gnostic Gospels is something that is contrary to what is found in Scripture. Uh, in the Gospels of Canon, uh, we see an affirmation of Jesus as the continuation and climax of God's redemptive history with Israel. Right? There's an organic unity in the story of redemption that finds its apex in the person and work of Christ. In contrast, the Gnostic Gospels completely detach Jesus from Israel and the history of Israel with God. And so these Gospels holds no connection between Jesus and the nation of Israel and the acts of God in the Old Testament, very problematic. Uh, a few more examples. Uh, when, we come, when it comes to canon and the uh, gospel accounts that we have in scripture, uh, we see a story of Jesus that finds deep connections with his followers, uh, his life and the early church and uh, how the followers of Jesus are called to live. But very different way, the Gnostic gospels put Jesus in a position of giving a secret knowledge to some of his disciples to pass it along to others in a secret way, right? contrary to what we find in uh, Scripture. Last example is, uh, you know, when you're reading through 
the Bible and the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus has a concern for his kingdom in creation, in the physical world. However, the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels was not interested in this world. Mostly, this Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels was preoccupied in fleeing from his earthly body and returning to the spirit world. And so, uh, one reason why the Gnostic Gospels are rejected as scriptures because of all these things that we just said, it does not find doctrinal unity with the rest of scripture. Another reason why we reject them uh, is because uh, they were written pretty late. Uh, In our first session of Can We Trust the Bible, we looked at this idea of providential exposure. Uh, Were certain books of the Bible exposed to the church? And that's needed. Why? Uh, Because the church would need the scriptures in order to be built up, be edified, and for instruction. And so we recognize that the Gospels of the Bible that we find in our uh, print copies today were written in the first century, right? Around maybe 70 AD. But on the other hand, the Gnostic Gospels were written in the second century. And so uh, we already know that the canonical Gospels were read and quoted as carrying authority in the early and middle second century. But we, we don't even hear about these non-canonical ones until the middle or the end of that second century. And so uh, when we think about it, if this was the word of God, uh, we would expect it to be distributed amongst God's people when the church was being formed in that first century. And so uh, because of this late dating, we can uh, is another reason why we can reject the Gnostic Gospels as scripture. Those are the only questions we'll be answering for today's episode. So until next time, if you have a question, feel free to submit it via email, victor at liberty.org, or give us a call, leave a message at 267-908-3625.